Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome Shelley Fitzpatrick to the show to speak about a very important but difficult topic, and that is the consumption of dogs by people in Asia. Now, most of us are familiar with the Yulin Dog Meat Festival and the practice of dog consumption in China, but there's more to the story, unfortunately. Hi, Shelley. Hi, Peter. Thank you for having me on the show today. Give us a little overview from your perspective. You've been in Southeast Asia personally. What's the situation on the ground with the consumption of a dog and cat, if you wish to talk about that? This was my second trip to South Korea now, uh, two years in a row. And what's interesting is that a lot of these great activists that I have been meeting with and working with, some of them, as they were growing up, knew they were consuming dogs and cats, but weren't really putting two and two together, sort of like us here in America, if uh, we were to consume, you know, chickens, cows, um, turkeys, we're not really putting two and two together until that light bulb finally turns on and and then we get it. And a lot of the activists over there in Korea are now really doing just that. They're putting it together, they're figuring it out, and they're working very diligently to make a difference in the lives of these, you know, dogs and cats there. Can you distinguish between uh, what happens in South Korea compared to China or and other countries? It's quite similar in the sense that in Korea, I would say probably a difference is they have a legislative, excuse me, legislative gray area, and it's really currently a political landmine that nobody in power wants to address. Even though there's a new president, President Moon, who is a huge dog lover, he had dogs as a kid. Uh, there are people in office that are, you know, pro dog meat, and there are people in office there that are anti dog meat. So it's a big battle that's been going on for quite some time. Uh, it's very similar to answer your question. It's very similar to Yulin in the sense that they have these dog meat eating festivals. And the, the difference would be that Korea has more free speech, whereas China, they're going to block a lot of that free speech, which is why all we hear about is Yulin, but it's difficult to get, you know, a lot of the information that we're able to get when we're in Korea. Uh, in Korea, you can easily go to the dog meat markets and you can film, but you definitely want to be, you know, undercover uh, about it. So it's legal in Korea. Very much legal in Korea. In Korea, there are 17,000 dog meat farms in South Korea alone, and there are approximately 2.5 million dogs that are tortured, killed, consumed in South Korea. And it's, you know, it's really past time to begin a new tradition of kindness and compassion towards dogs and cats, because culture should not equal violence. I tell people, please don't consider it that you're telling another country what to do. Think of it as this. Think of it as the dogs in Korea and China and these other countries are begging for our help. And the animal rights activists there that are fighting against it, they all need our help, too. They can't they can't. No one can do this alone. It's always a team effort. It's going to take the world to end this. Talk a little bit about the activists on the ground in those countries, what they are able to do and uh, really how what we do here can support them. The activists there, I'll tell you personally, they're the most wonderful people, the kindest hearts. It's, um, it is a little odd when I'm there because I just truly 
have such an appreciation and respect for these individuals. I, I do absolutely. They, I consider them my friends and my family. They um, something big that just recently happened. I'll, I'll talk about that. I think is very important with what they're doing. There is a group over there called CARE, which stands for the Coexistence of uh, Animal Rights on Earth. And what they did recently was they sued a dog owner, dog farm, and basically said that what they were doing was illegal. And in this sense, they took it to court, and this civil court ruled that, in fact, they did find it to be illegal to kill dogs for their dog meat. Hmm. And that's a, that's a huge win right now for us. Um, there was some false news around it that came out though people said oh south korea has banned you know the killing of dogs and it's not true it's like if one court here let's say one court in palm Springs, said you know this is wrong we don't allow it that doesn't mean that the entire u.s has banned something or made it illegal it just means in this one small city so that's what's happened over there so this court was the first court decision that ruled killing dogs for dog meat is illegal and we're all hoping and praying that this ruling will set the stage for more court battle wins in our favor however on the flip side there are many dog farm owners uh slaughterhouses that are protesting the ruling now they're calling for the government to officially legalize dog meat consumption and sadly south korea just appointed a pro dog meat eater uh, as the leader of agriculture there so again it's really a, it's a big uphill battle that they have so people on the ground need help with respect to awareness they they regularly ask that we uh, stop purchasing products that are made in south korea from some of these big corporations so whether it's a samsung or lg if we tell them and we're putting out there saying look we're no longer going to buy your products because we want the dog meat trade to end and in doing so, we, they feel that those companies will jump on the bandwagon and they'll help to end the dog meat trade. Now, granted, it's going to be because of financial reasons, but who cares, right? Whatever, whatever it takes uh, to end this horrific practice is what's needed over there. I'm wondering if you could touch on the psychology uh, for a moment. Here in the U.S. and North America, you know, some animals are okay to eat. Well, we don't eat any of them, but you know what I mean. Some animals are okay. Others are considered repulsive to eat, such as dog or, or horse. Um, what is going on in the minds and the culture in, in Korea that uh, still permits that? And is it changing? Do you see the younger generation not accepting the notion that eating dog is like normal? Uh, in Korea? Yeah. In South Korea? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We are finding that the younger generation they're not consuming it. But the problem is this. When I was out with the other activists, the, the local South Korean activists, um, what they do is they'll, they'll walk the, the streets and they'll hold up the signs. They'll have tables. They'll have people come up and sign petitions. And the biggest thing I noticed was that I would see people walking by, you know, I guess millennials, uh, the younger people, you know, they're in their suits, it's lunch hour, they're, they're passing by the, you know, the table, and most of them would just pass on by, and, and or they would look at the table, and they'd see the signs to end dog meat trade, and they would turn the other way, 
And I believe that even though they may not be consuming it themselves, because more people now in South Korea are owning pets and having them as companion animals, they may have parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, grandmothers, grandfathers that are either in the business, so their, their you know, livelihood may depend upon it, or they've been doing it so long that you try to tell them, hey, grandma, grandpa, I don't agree with this. The South Koreans believe that, you know, respect of your elders is very important. So they just keep quiet. And I believe that that's also a problem as well. We're speaking with Shelley Fitzpatrick. Shelley, you have posted some pictures of the protests on your website. Where can people uh, see those and learn more? Sure, absolutely. So on my uh, Facebook page, it's under Shelley Gautier Fitzpatrick, my married name. They can go there and see some amazing footage while I was there live of the protests of a pro dog meat vendor. One of the leaders of the association was really stirring some things up so they can find it on my Facebook page. I personally try to post pictures and videos that are not graphic. I I also have another site on Facebook, They Need Our Voice Save Dogs. And it's more just to raise awareness and to really show people what the South Korean activists are up against. And And I do try to make it you know, again, non-graphic, because I think that if it's too graphic, some people will just check out and not join in the fight to help to end it. So I just try to raise awareness. But if people want full-blown details in all of the all of the information, there's a site called koreandogs.org. They can also go there. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today and giving us an overview of what's happening there. You bet. Thank you so much, Peter. I greatly appreciate it. And thanks for helping to raise awareness for this cause. More with animals today after the break. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways, by going to the Animals Today website, That's animalstodayradio.com or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes. And when you do each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening. As temperatures climb, please remember never to leave your dog in the car, even for just a minute. Because even with the windows cracked and your car parked in the shade, the temperature inside can climb up in a matter of minutes, high enough to kill your pet. If you love your dog, leave them at home. And if you see a dog or other pet in a car, you may only have a minute to save their life. Here are a couple steps you can take. Make an announcement in the store or business that the car is parked nearest to. Also, call the police department or animal control 
control right away. Remember, it only takes a minute or two for a dog to get seriously ill or die in a car on a warm day. So swift action can save a life. Dogs are unable to cool themselves the way people can. So never leave a dog or any animal inside a car on a warm day, not even for a minute. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Our dogs have been enjoying the Tuffy toys, which are from DuraForce Dog Toys. These are soft toys that are very durable. They're made with multiple layers of material, one of which is text line that covers the outer surface of the toy. They also sew all the outside seams with multiple rolls of stitching and cross stitch on the top. A nice feature is that the squeakers are sewn into safety pockets on the inside layers of the toy, which makes it much harder for your dog to ingest one. That's Tuffy Toys from DuraForce Dog Toys. Welcome back to Animals Today. Hey, Lori. Hi, Peter. I want to tell you about a new product called Dog Spot. This is a great example of technology helping dogs and helping their people, okay? These are sidewalk sanctuaries. They're placed at the entrances of locations where dogs are prohibited. Maybe you're out and about with your dog and you want to go into a shop, but you don't want to leave your dog in a car or tether it outside. These are tech-enabled dog houses, and they are a safe, legal, and convenient alternative to those other worrisome options. They look like big old dog houses, and they are being sited in cities around the country. They started the service in New York with a 50-location network built on partnerships with local businesses that were committed to becoming more dog-friendly. It's good for business because it attracts new customers to your shop. So these dog houses are staged outside of businesses? That's right. And they're about approximately four feet tall. They have a puppy cam app so you can watch your dog while you shop away. They have heating and air conditioning. They are spacious. They have air that gets circulated by a fan. There's an auto sanitizing feature with UV light to get rid of bacteria and viruses and mold. And your dog is remotely monitored by you and also by the company. So you get the app and then you put your dog in and you just... Don't have to worry. Isn't that great? That's pretty cool. Yeah. So look for Dog Spot in cities including Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., West Palm Beach, Florida, Southampton, New York, Orlando, Florida, and many others. So, Peter, you think this is going to really take hold and this is the next thing? This looks very promising to me. And I think maybe phase two will be little enclosures for your children. Oh, I like that even more. So when you're in a shop shopping, you don't have to be bothered by the kids. I know. You can monitor them. uh... Just put them in the doghouse. (laughs) Don't call it a doghouse. It's a child safety pod. (laughs) Lori, what do you have there? Okay, so remember growing up with animal crackers? Of course. They come in the cute red and yellow little boxes with the words Barnum's animals on them. Yeah, yeah. And they have a picture of exotic animals behind bars. They were good, weren't they? Oh, pretty good. I like them. It's been a while. Well, they're still on the shelves, however, with a new design. The company, Mondelez International, which is the parent company of Nabisco, took advice from PETA 
and redesign the packaging of its Barnum's animal crackers. And instead of showing the animals in cages, right, implying that they're traveling in boxcars for the circus, the new boxes feature a zebra, elephant, lion, giraffe, and gorilla wandering side by side in a grassland, like free in Africa. To me, it looks like they're like members of a superhero team, doesn't it? They're just like lined up coming at you. They do. They do. So same coloring, same wording, Barnum's animals, but the pictures are different with the animals without the cages. PETA's executive vice president, Tracy Riemann, says the new box for Barnum's animal crackers perfectly reflects that our society no longer tolerates the caging and chaining of wild animals for circus shows. And she says, celebrating the box design for the cultural change it represents. Now, Jason Levine, Mondelez's chief marketing officer for North America, stated, when Peter reached out about Barnum's, we saw this as another great opportunity to continue to keep this brand modern and contemporary. Peter, just a quick recap. Remember, Ringling Brothers and Barnum existed for 146 years. Now, in 2016, due to pressure from many animal welfare groups and animal activists, the circus removed their elephants from its shows. And then the following year, May 2017, the circus closed down due to plummeting ticket sales. And in addition, you should know that more than 80 U.S. cities have fully or partially banned circuses with wild animals. This is according to Animal Defenders International. And this company, Mondelez, is based in Illinois, which passed a statewide ban on circuses with elephants that went into effect in January. So what do you think about this, Peter? That's interesting. Where's my cookie, though? (laughs) Does it represent a cultural change? Maybe. Is it going to have any effect? Uh, I don't know. If you believe in the suggestibility of the subconscious mind, maybe, but... I see no harm in it. I think it's a great business decision and a brilliant marketing move by the company and a very easy sell by PETA. I think an even better business model would be in addition to the redesign of the boxes is for a portion of the sales of the product go toward helping retired circus animals. That's a great idea. Thank you. Are these cookies vegan, by the way? Are there is there milk or eggs in these cookies? Yes, I believe they are. Otherwise, PETA would have probably made a much larger demand, right? You bet. Lori, I have a new most pet-friendly cities survey to tell you about. Good. This is from WalletHub, and they looked at the 100 largest cities across three key dimensions. One was pet budget, two, pet health and wellness, and three, outdoor pet friendliness. And they really looked at 24 different subcategories and provided an overall rank for most pet-friendly cities, as well as rankings on each of those three categories. So what do you think the most pet-friendly city in the United States is now? Let's see. San Diego, Seattle, Santa Monica, anything that begins with an S. Yes. Scottsdale, Arizona. Scottsdale. That's how you group our cities. (laughs) So here's the list. Most pet-friendly cities, one through 10. Scottsdale, Orlando, San Diego, Austin, Texas, Phoenix, Tampa, Cincinnati, Seattle, Las Vegas, and Irvine, California. How about that? And the other category that I'm interested in is outdoor pet friendliness. Number one, San Francisco. Number two, Fremont, California. That's across the bay. Number three, Los Angeles, four, Scottsdale, and five, Irvine, California. I found that pretty surprising, especially the one on Scottsdale about outdoor pet friendliness because it's so hot for so much of the year, you can hardly bring your dog outside. That's got to be a negative, but maybe they don't care about that. Anyway, overall, most pet-friendly city is Scottsdale, Arizona. Okay, thanks, Peter. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. 
you know what declawing is? People often mistakenly believe that declawing is a simple procedure that removes a cat's nails. Sadly, this is far from the truth because declawing is actually a painful surgery in which the last bone of each toe is amputated, including skin, tendons, and nerves. If performed on a person, it would be like amputating each finger at the last joint. Besides the immediate risk of surgery, like infection and bleeding, the pain cat's experience continues long after the surgery, preventing them from walking normally and leading to arthritis. Often, after declawing, cats will stop using their litter boxes, choosing carpet, beds, or piles of clothing instead. And without their claws, their first line of defense, many declawed cats will feel stressed and begin biting. Plus, if your cat happens to get outside, she'll need her claws to defend herself from other animals. Most people get their cats declawed to try to prevent unwanted scratching and damage to furniture. But scratching is a natural behavior that is important for cats. Declawed cats cannot stretch or knead normally. Why would anyone want to take that away from a cat? The bottom line is declawed cats can suffer lifelong discomfort and disability. It's not difficult to modify the scratching behaviors of a cat, such as having a few sturdy scratching posts around the house and using toys and catnip to encourage their use. Did you know that many countries have banned declawing? And many veterinarians in the U.S. refuse to perform the procedure because it is unnecessary and cruel. So those are the facts about declawing. There's just no reason to do this to your cats. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. You may remember me speaking about our rescue Ridgeback Susie, who now is in heaven. As she got older, she developed crippling degenerative back disease. And we've spoken about this condition on prior shows. But she also suffered from allergies. And this manifested in inflamed paws and a lot of scratching at her ears. In fact, in the first year or so after I rescued her from the streets, she developed hematomas in both her ears, which left her with floppy, scarred ears, different from the former upright shape, but still beautiful in their own way. Dr. Doug Coons is here with us now because we wanted to speak about allergies in dogs, a topic that can be quite confusing and often frustrating to guardians and cause great discomfort to our pets. Dr. Coons is medical director at VCA Desert Animal Hospital in Palm Springs, California. And Doug and I have been friends for, wow, more than 20 years now. And he has cared for so many of our animals over the years. Welcome, Doug, and thanks for wanting to come on the show to talk about allergy. Well, thanks for having me, Lori. This is just a really fascinating topic. Why don't we begin with you giving us an overview on the main types of allergies afflicting dogs? Well, you certainly touched uh, some of the most important with Susie. Allergy in the dog is a little different than allergy in you or I in that the target organ of allergy is the skin 
where the target organ in humans is the respiratory tract. So when we inhale a pollen or some substance that evokes an allergic reaction, we choke up and we sneeze and our eyes run and itch. But with a dog, their feet itch. Sometimes they itch around the eyes and the dog will rub their face along the furniture or the carpeting. Sometimes they'll chew on their feet or sometimes they're just scratching and itching uncontrollably and particularly guardians notice that when their pets sleep with them at night and the pet is shaking the bed with their scratching and itching. And of course allergy is caused by the release of histamine uh, which is a chemical in the body and and again in humans that histamine is released into the respiratory tract Mm -hmm. but in dogs into the skin. So our therapies to try and counteract that are to try, traditionally have been to try and tie up the, the histamine. And of course, we use antihistamines for that. You know, Benadryl is one that's been around for a long time and, and sometimes helps a little bit. But antihistamines are not very effective in the dog. Some of the double-blinded studies that are really good studies that have looked at antihistamines, there are about 30% of dogs with allergy that respond. And there's some feeling that, particularly with Benadryl, it's just the sedative effect that helps the animal. Oh, interesting. Doug, what are alternative or additional diagnoses when you are considering allergy in a, in a pet in front of you? Whenever we see an itchy pet, one of the things we have to think about is our parasites, particularly fleas. And even though here in the desert we don't see a lot of fleas because we're such a dry climate, in the rest of the country we do have higher humidity levels. And fleas are probably one of the main reasons that dogs get itchy. And dogs can also develop allergy to the bite of the flea, so it can kind of be a double whammy. Also, sometimes infections that are superficial in the skin can cause itchiness, and that can cause inflamed skin and make the dog show symptoms that are similar to to allergy. And, of course, then we have to use an antibiotic or an antibiotic uh, shampoo that will will kill the bacteria. Normally, these are bacteria that are on the skin and don't cause problems, but sometimes because of a marginal allergy, it'll cause inflammation in the skin and then the bacteria get a foothold. How do you approach diagnosing allergy when you have the patient right there in the office? Well, it's some of the same things that might happen with you or I. One is to look for signs of parasites to see if there's flea dirt, particularly around the tail head, or sometimes by parting the hair, we'll actually see a flea moving. And of course, the first step, if we do make that diagnosis, is to use something that will counteract the fleas. And there are such wonderful products these days. We have uh, some new anti-flea medications that affect a certain neural pathway in the flea that that mammals don't have, so it's they're really safe products, but they will have an effectiveness for up to three months with a tablet uh, that a dog takes orally. But also we'll look for other things like mange, sarcoptic mange, and sometimes we'll do a, a skin scraping to look for the mange mites because those also cause intense itching. And it's kind of when we eliminate all those that we 
we make a presumptive diagnosis of allergy. However, there are additional tests we can run. Sometimes we recommend the, our clients take their dogs to a dermatologist for skin testing, and they actually will inject a little bit of a lot of different of, of an individual uh, allergen or substance that evokes an allergy under the skin and see if it causes a little raised welt. There's also a test, a blood test, that correlates fairly well with the skin testing that can help us diagnose allergy. Uh, those can be pricey, and so sometimes we skip that test because of economic reasons, and we just go and say, okay, we'll try and treat the allergy. So speaking of environmental allergies, what are the main culprits in environmental allergy, and how do you figure out what they are and how to begin treatment? Well, of course, the big ones are pollens, and uh, they can be a variety of pollens depending on the geographic area. We may have Bermuda grass and olive tree pollens here that evoke allergy, whereas uh, in on the East Coast it may be tree pollens or ragweed or uh, some of the fall and spring weeds that we don't have here in the desert. And so... Again, the, those specific allergy tests like the skin test or the blood test can give us a diagnosis of those particular allergies. But again, sometimes we just go ahead and treat. And uh, we talked a little bit about antihistamines. And traditionally, we've also used corticosteroids. And corticosteroids suppress the uh, allergic reaction. And so, but they have some side effects. And so, Long-term, steroids become a real balancing act between keeping the dog comfortable but not causing long-term side effects that can be very detrimental, uh, damage to the liver or causing muscle weakness or excessive thirst and, and consequently excessive urination. Any other forms of treatment? Yes, there are, and this is where it gets really exciting. When we do the allergy testing so that we know specifically what an animal is allergic to, we can develop a serum that has minute amounts of the uh, pollen or the, the substance that's evoking the allergy. And then we can give shots periodically that desensitize the animal to uh, or the dog to the pollens. And that works about 60 to 65% of the time. It's not 100%, but again, it's been one of the very safest ways to treat because uh, there really is no side effect other than we have to watch a little bit. Sometimes a dog will have a, a reaction as we increase the amount of, of allergen in the, in the uh, serum. Uh, but some of the other things that we use, there's a drug called cyclosporin that's actually used as a chemotherapeutic agent, but in smaller doses, it, it also will control allergy by suppressing the immune system. But the really exciting thing that we've just had come on the market in the last couple of years are drugs that, they're not drugs, they're actually antibodies that target the pathway of chemicals that causes the brain to evoke the itching response. There's some substance in the body 
uh, called interleukin. And interleukin, there, 31 particularly, is a substance that is released in an allergic reaction that causes the brain to say, oh, we need to scratch. And these new substances, uh, antibodies, have been developed. They're called monoclonal antibodies in that that means they're, very, they're, they're just one antibody. It targets that interleukin-31 and ties it up so that the message never gets to the brain to itch. And uh, there are two different dr- uh, forms of this antibody. One is an oral drug called Apoquel. Uh, that's given every day. And the other is an injection called Cytopoint that we give every month. And uh, these target just that very specific thing and, and are very safe, they're very effective, and they don't have the side effects that we get from the corticosteroids or from the cyclosporin, or, or, and they're more effective than the, the allergy desensitization and certainly than the antihistamines. Doug, what non-medicine things can guardians do in and around the home to help with environmental allergy treatment? You know, I read air purifiers and rinsing the dog and soaking the paws or just keeping the home well dusted and vacuumed. In fact, one online vet suggested removing your shoes before entering the home. Are any of these things helpful? They are, Lori. You know, we've found that the pollens that a dog might be allergic to don't have to be introduced into the body by by breathing them in. That actually, if a dog walks on the grass and there are pollens that have been deposited in the grass, they can be absorbed through the skin, which is, is new within the last probably five years. We didn't know that. So... Uh, absolutely, wiping your dog's feet off after you come in, taking your shoes off and not tracking them, tracking the pollens into the houses, that's a great idea. And, of course, the air purifiers help as well. Our, our problem, particularly here in the desert, is is we go outside and we may have pollens that are blowing in with the wind yeah. from 30 miles away. And so consequently, we we tend to have very high pollen counts here in the desert. But wiping your dog down with a damp cloth also is helpful. We're speaking to veterinarian Dr. Doug Coons. And after the break, we're going to talk about another very common problem, food allergies in dogs. You're listening to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm proud to say that we are now in our 10th year of continuous weekly broadcasts, bringing you animal welfare and animal rights news and stories from around the globe. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please check them out at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's aianimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support. Welcome back to Animals Today. Let's turn now to the discussion about food allergy. How do you recognize food allergy in a dog that's in your office? You know, there, there's some kind of key guidelines in that. We think 
three months, if, if the allergy symptoms are in a dog that's three months to three years, our level of suspicion that it's food allergy is quite high. Over three years, we'd think much more environmental. And it's a real detective job to try and uh, decide if we, in fact, have a food allergy. I bet. It, it's a matter of sometimes taking the dog completely off everything commercial and actually feeding them a home-cooked diet. And usually the culprit in food allergy is the protein source in the diet. And so there, uh, one particular dermatologist from Michigan State University Vet School, Ed Roscoff, that's done tremendous research in this area. And he actually would have his clients feed a combination of uh, pinto beans and green vegetables, green and yellow vegetables, uh, for two months, and then reintroduce the dog food that, that we thought might be the culprit and see if it evokes the, the allergy to return. Uh, we, we've got some better tools now than, than just doing that. Sometimes it's hard to cook for a dog, and although we have quite a few clients over the past few years that do that since we've had some of the scares we have with recalled foods, mainly for infectious reasons. But we now have diets that have what are, what's called a hydrolyzed protein source, and what that means is proteins are made up of amino acids in long chains. And so by shortening those chains uh, to very small segments of amino acids, the body is unable to recognize the protein source, so they, they won't react to it. And uh, so these hydrolyzed protein diets are a wonderful diagnostic tool. We can f feed that exclusively to a dog for two months and see if the symptoms resolve. And then we usually challenge the dog with the original diet and see if, in fact, we have the allergy return. And if we do, then we know for sure it's food allergy. And then we can continue to feed that hydrolyzed protein diet, although that, those tend to be expensive. Or then we can look for unique protein sources like kangaroo or venison or duck, uh, which uh, often the dogs have never been introduced to. But there's still a chance that down the road, even with those unique proteins, that a dog can develop uh, an allergy to them. You know, I can imagine undertaking the elimination diets that you're describing here must be hard to do. Wow, at least for our dogs who are scavengers on walks, reflexively grabbing and ingesting discarded food pieces they come across on the street or sidewalk. Also, certain treats one might give to their dog might have an antigen or an ingredient you're trying to avoid giving to your dogs during the test period of an elimination diet. Absolutely. In fact, we have to be careful about the treats. We have to be careful that, that supplements, you know, like a vitamin tablet or even a flea or, uh, or heartworm medication that may have pro certain proteins compounded into the tablet to make it chewable and tasty. Oh, good point. So we have to be really, really diligent in that elimination diet to make sure that the dog doesn't have anything for the two months. Are there any other types of allergies that we should mention here? Do you often see a combination of food and environmental allergies in your patients? We do. 
we do. They're not common, but sometimes we have to have to approach it from both standpoints. Mm. And and those become those become sometimes really frustrating cases. And there are a few dogs out there. In spite of everything we do, they just have a terrible time. I actually had one client that their, their dog had such awful allergies. He finally sent the dog to his cousin in Minnesota. And during the winter, the dog would have no allergy symptoms, but then three or four months out of the year when they had their pollens being deposited, the dog would be uncomfortable. But here in the desert, it was year-round. Wow. Do allergies in dogs tend to lessen in intensity with age? No, just the opposite. Uh, With any allergy, it takes repeated exposure to cause the the allergic condition, as opposed to, say, a bee sting, which might be an immediate allergic reaction. Uh, pollen allergies take repeated exposure. Uh, sometimes, you know, it may take two or three years for that to develop, but as they get older, it can get worse. Doug, many home remedies like over-the-counter supplements are advertised, like omega-3s and coconut oil and many other herbs and so on. What what do you think is helpful? You know, omega-3 fatty acids, the essential fatty acids, uh, are anti-inflammatory. And so we often will suggest that a client, that a guardian give that to to their dog, give the omega-3s to their dog. And the marine source seems source ones seem to be the most effective. Uh, There's some products, too, that are are barrier protectors, uh, actually a fatty acid supplement that's a spot-on that's absorbed into the skin that helps to reestablish the the skin as a protective barrier against the pollen. So those things are, are really really good. There, there are some other things that maybe are not quite so helpful, but, but the omega-3 fatty acids, I'm a, a big believer in them. Doug, any final thoughts for my listeners? Well, I just would really encourage your listeners, if they have a dog or a cat that they suspect have aller- has allergies, that they take them to their veterinarian because these uh, allergy problems can become quite debilitating to their pet, and uh, there are solutions. So see your veterinarian, and he'll be your best friend if he can solve the allergy problems. Thank you very much, veterinarian Dr. Doug Coons. Thanks, Lori. Thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. What caught my eye about the Platinum Pets Premium Dog and Cat Bowls were the beautiful colors in these bowls. We have been using, and the dogs are happily using, bowls that are surgical-grade stainless steel bowls that are colored in beautiful raspberry and sapphire blue. 
and the cats are using their little double diners. They are in beautiful pastel shades of sky blue and cotton candy pink. You don't see that every day in a cat bowl. Who wants boring dog and cat bowls? You want a little color in your life. Well, these are very high quality, top grade dog and cat bowls that not only are durable, but have a beautiful dazzling finishes. Our cats have been enjoying a new pet bed. It's called the Perch Pet Nest and it has a really interesting slung basket design. It's made out of powder-coated steel tubing and the same durable fabric that's used on strollers, and that makes it really nice-looking and easy to clean. It's elevated, which allows its occupant to stay cool, and I'm told it's especially good for small dogs, although our cats like it a lot. That is the Perch Pet Nest.